Uh, that's, that's what we're looking at going forward. I'm glad we're together today. And we are, for the next two weeks, going to kind of close out this section of our series in the book of Acts before moving to the book of Philippians uh, for the summer. So today we're in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. We put words on the screen as well, but I always think it's helpful if you have a Bible uh, to have it in front of you. If you don't have one, let me know and we'll just give you one um, because we would love for you to have uh, God's Word in your hands. So uh, here's what we're doing today. We're looking at Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. And it seems, uh, God just always seems to do this, that this seems really fitting for us to be in this passage at this time. Our church has a long history, something I'm really grateful for, um, that from the beginning, our church has had kind of this, this uh, commitment to raising up and then sending out and praying for and providing for missionaries to go all across the globe. And so a good portion of our budget goes to those missions partners. And some have been brought up in this church and then sent out by this church to do that work. It's a great privilege and responsibility for us to play an active role in God's work to have the gospel advancing to the nations. And we do that recognizing that those missions partners are often giving up freedoms that we enjoy and take for granted and all sorts of things that we have that make our lives comfortable. Maybe towards the top of that list, being surrounded by friends and family who we know and love us. And so making a commitment to go to another part of the world, forcing kind of separation from family, brings about all sorts of extra challenges. And there are places in the world where they just naturally face all sorts of extra challenges. So we have some missionaries right now of ours that are in a pretty tough spot. More about that this week as we send out some messages and encourage you to pray. But it seems fitting that at this time we're in the book of Acts chapter 12 because here in Acts chapter 12 we're going to see that though God is certainly at work, we've seen that. The church is growing in number and the church is expanding to new areas. But along with that growth and expansion has come some stresses. They've experienced the challenges of cross-cultural ministry. They have seen the potential for division. And they've seen some degree of opposition. Most of the time, so far in the book of Acts, that opposition has come from Jewish religious leaders. But now they're going to also start to face opposition from governing authorities. And so... We're going to look at Acts chapter 12 today, verses 1 through 19, where the big idea is this. Even in the face of deadly opposition, God ensures that the gospel continues to advance as the church prays. So, if you're able to, our custom is that we stand as we read the God of Word, the God of Word, the Word of God. And so, if you're able to, please do that and we'll just jump right into reading God's Word. Acts chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, 
When Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Amen. You can be seated. All right. So let's get to work at looking at this passage. We want to first understand what God's Word says. And as we understand what God's Word says, then we want to apply it to our lives. And I think there's plenty to apply here. First point, verses 1 through 5, is just this. Persecution, prison, and prayer. Persecution, prison, and prayer. Luke is the narrator here, and he tells us that this is happening about that time. Okay, around the same time as the events of chapter 11, just so we kind of have a timeline in our mind, this is probably in the early 40s. I think it was the year 44 when this King Herod died, so it had to have been before that. Okay, and then we're introduced to this character. It says, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. I need to pause there because you hear the word Herod, and if you've spent some time in the Bible before... Your, your mind is thinking of this one guy named Herod, or maybe two different guys named Herod. I'm telling you, there's actually three different guys named Herod, three different generations of Herods, okay? And so I want us to understand which one this is. There was Herod, the grandpa of this Herod that we're talking about here, who at the time of the birth of Jesus ordered that all male children two years of age and younger in the town of Bethlehem be killed because he felt threatened by this newborn king, the Christ, the Messiah was born. So remember that? That's what forced Jesus and his family to flee down to Egypt. It was Herod the Great, okay? Herod the Great's son, who was actually this Herod's uncle, okay, became the next king, and it was that Herod who ordered the beheading of John the Baptist. 
And now we're into the third generation of Herods. And this Herod is, so, so one thing these Herods have in common is they seem to be enemies of Jesus and his church, right? And, and that's exactly what's happening here with this Herod as well. This King Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. And verse 2 tells us this. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. We've seen persecution. We've seen even execution so far in the book of Acts. Remember a man named Saul was overseeing the execution of a man named Stephen. And now it's coming from the government. It's King Herod who is saying these people need to be put to death. And he's starting right at the top. He's starting with one of Jesus' 12 disciples. Now, man, all these names, uh, confusing. There's three different hairs. There's, there's a couple different guys named James as well, right? So the James that he's speaking of here in verse 2, when it says James was put to death with the sword, this is James, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. There was a couple of disciples, James and John, who were brothers, sons of Zebedee. James and John, brothers with one another, the John who wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation, his brother was James. And that James did not write the book of James, that was a different James, okay? But, but this James, the disciple of Jesus, brother of John, one thing you might remember about him, we learn a lot more about John in the Gospels, but you might remember that this brother of brother of John named James, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, he was the one who came with John up to Jesus and asked him, I think it was Mark 10, hey, can we be at your right hand and left hand when you're in glory? And Jesus, remember, told them, it's not for me to decide that. And he said, are you able to be baptized? Or are you able to kind of like drink the cup that I'm about ready to, to drink? Right? Jesus was warning them of his impending death and saying it's going to come to you too. Well, here in verse 2, it's come to James. Just like Jesus said. James is indeed put to death. He's martyred for his faith in Jesus by King Herod. Now, King Herod, yes, he's evil. He's also a people pleaser. He's kind of a populist kind of king. He's going to do whatever would please the Jewish people. And that's what leads him to, after executing James, turning his attention to somebody else. Look at what it says here in verse 3. It says, And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, so it's almost like he was using James as this test case. He wants to know, are, are the Jews going to be happier with me if I take out some of these followers of the way, these followers of Jesus? If I take some of them out, are they going to be happy? And so he starts with James, and it pleased the Jews. Seeing therefore that it pleased the Jews, what does he do next? It says he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Peter, the disciple of Jesus, who's now kind of like the leader in the church. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And he tells us this, this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Okay? So he, he knows the Jewish people that he's governing well enough to know, okay, they have these customs and I can't, I can't bring out this man who I want to see executed. I want him to be next. They seem to be happy that I executed James. Peter's going to be next, but I have to wait till they're 
Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover is over. And after that's done, the plan is take him out of prison. But while he's in prison, make sure he's guarded really, really well. Okay? So that's what's happening as we open up Acts chapter 12. So what are the fellow believers going to do? I mean, would you be scared? Yes, right? Now, the man probably with the most power in that area, King Herod, is laying violent hands on some who belong to the church, and he's starting right at the top. He's already killed James. Now Peter's in prison. What are they going to do? Vote to impeach him? Right? What, what are they going to do? What are they going to do with this leader? Storm the palace? Make a plan to bust Peter out of prison? Well, here's what they do. You see that at the end of verse 5? But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The church doesn't organize a protest or go grab their guns. The church grabs their greatest weapon given to them by God. Prayer. And it says, I love just the simplicity of it, they're praying for Peter. So it tells us who they're praying for. Prayer for him. And it was made to God, right? That's who we pray. We don't send prayers to other people. We pray to God. So prayer for him to God by the church. The church gathering together to pray for Peter to God. And it says that they're doing, they're, uh, it says earnest prayer. That's the adjective that goes with prayer. And the original word there means kind of this combination of perseverance and intensity. Okay, so their prayer wasn't just like a quick, well, we'll see if we'll just kind of throw this one out there and see what happens. It wasn't a casual kind of prayer. It was a persevering, intense kind of prayer that the church is making for their brother, Peter, and their leader, Peter. Let's just pause here for a moment, and a point of application for us, I think, would be a very simple one. We need to pray, church. There is a battle raging all around us, and we're not praying enough. I think one of the reasons we don't pray enough is most of the time to us, I think most of the, the battle is invisible. We just don't see it. And because we don't see a battle going on around us, we fail to pray. But what's actually happening around us is there's kind of a teaming up of the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh teaming up against us, and really life and death is at stake. Here's what it says in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 11, I think it is, says this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may, not be, ab- that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That, that's where the battle is being fought. And that battle, we engage in that battle through this work of prayer. The church doesn't have much else at its disposal at this time. Maybe we've become accustomed to having other sorts of things, political influence and power, whatever else it might be at our disposal. So we forget that really we're pretty powerless against the force, the spiritual forces of evil. And the weapon that God has given to us is the weapon of prayer. Now, sometimes this mostly invisible battle becomes visible. Maybe in your mind, you have pictures of 
ISIS in Libya or stories of Boko Haram in Nigeria. We can even think about, like I mentioned before, our own missionaries, and they're in a tough spot. We're going to get some information out to you about how you can be praying for Mandy this week. Mindy continues to, you know, having to leave the mission field now and get treatment in order that her life might be saved here in the States so that she might be able to continue on in that work that God has called her to. Continue to support Mary Beth and Bio in Nigeria, which is an extremely dangerous spot in the world for Christians to be living right now. So later in that same passage in Ephesians 6, it says this, Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication and to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That's what we're going to do this week. So I just thought like, well, what's some application, some potential application of, of the word of God here? Well, we need to pray. Well, what did the church do when they saw the danger that had been raging all around, but now they see it face to face? Peter sitting in prison, the church earnestly prays for him. Well, we couldn't find a time on, on scheduling to, like, here's where everybody can get together. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to send out some messages this week to everybody that's on the church distribution prayer list, okay? If you have Gmail, check your promotions folder. Sometimes it goes there, okay? Uh, and we'll get these messages out to you. Uh, so that each day there's going to be one of our missions partners that we're praying for. Okay? You can do that alone. You can do that together as a family. Maybe that's just a commitment. You say, like, as a family this week, we're going to be doing this. Maybe you get together with a couple other families whenever you can this week and just pray together. I think that would be a pretty obvious application of what we see here. The church earnestly praying for those that are in a tough spot, in this case, Peter. All right, so what is God going to do as the church prays? Peter in prison, church praying, what does God do? Look at verse 6. Gives us the time. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, okay? So it's the next day, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread is over. He's going to bring him out. They already have the verdict in mind. He's going to die just like James died, right? He's going to be executed. That's what's going to happen the next day. But... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Listen to how Luke highlights how secure this prison was. Peter's sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. Peter is well guarded. Herod has a lot of power and he's using it. Right? And he's using it to make sure that Peter stays in prison. Because if you remember, maybe hear the story of the other time that Peter was in prison and got out. Right? That's back in chapter 4 or 5 of the book of Acts. So he's making sure. He's got chains. He's got guards. There's other guards at the door. And Peter, he's cowering and anxious in the corner. Right? Because tomorrow he dies. Or, no, wait, did you read the text? That's not what Peter's doing. What's Peter doing? Did you notice this? Peter's sleeping, right? Verse 6 just says, Peter's just sleeping. Is that what you do on the night before your execution? Chains on your arms, guards at your sides? Ah, it's time to sleep, right? 
sometimes you got something coming up the next day that, that's not nearly as uh, significant as that, and it's hard to sleep, right? He's just sleeping. And then it says this. I think Luke is really trying to emphasize all throughout this that the church is doing about the only thing the church can do. It's praying, right? And, and Peter, he doesn't even know what's going on, really. Did you hear as I read that? I mean, he's just sleeping. He knows what's coming, but he's sleeping. And now, here's what happens. An angel has to wake him up. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. It seems that usually when angels come, they get attention of people right away. Peter keeps sleeping. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. Okay? And the chains fell off his hands. And now... Peter, it, it, we're going to find out here in a little bit, it's kind of like, like he doesn't really even, it's like he's not totally awake yet. Like he was sleeping and, and he gets whacked by the angel and told to get up. And he's kind of like, he's got to be walked through every step. Like maybe you've done this with your kids before. Like, all right, we've got to get your clothes on, right? right? That's kind of what the angel's doing. Get up quickly, verse 8. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. Now listen, here's what it says. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. Right? So the whole time, some of you, this is kind of how you are in the morning until you get coffee. It's just kind of like this, like I'm kind of awake. Like the, the whole time, it's like Peter's not even, t- he's not sure. He had a vision in chapter 10. That was really important. Like maybe, maybe there's just another one of those visions. He's not totally sure what's going on. But, verse 10, when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. Okay, so he's already had the chains fall off. The two guards who were next to him, he's gotten past them, got past the first and the second guard. Now they get to an iron gate and it just opens by itself. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. And then it says this in verse 11, when Peter came to himself, so it's kind of like, this is like, this is like for you, like the moment when you finally drank your coffee and it kicks in, right? All of it, like now, now he gets it. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Peter's not super actively involved in most of that process. God just rescues him. And then after the rescue has taken place, he gets what, what just happened. Right? Now, let's pause here for a moment before we look at the rest of the passage and another point of application. I want to talk about what happens when we pray. Because that's what the church was doing here. The church was praying. And we all know from our own experience and from what we see in Scripture, that when we pray, God does not always give us what we ask. I assume since the church gathered together to pray for their leader, Peter, James, who was also in a position of leadership in the church, would have been somebody that the church would have prayed for. Right? What happened to James? He died. He was executed. Our memory verse for this week, Matthew 7, 7, doesn't mean that you'll get whatever you ask for if you have enough faith. As we'll see here in a bit, the people praying for Peter, they didn't have much faith at all. Yet God gave them what they asked for anyway. And we know 
that oftentimes people with a lot of faith pray and God doesn't answer the way we prefer. Why is that? I, I don't totally know, but here's a couple of things that I do know. I do know that Romans 8.28 says that God works together for good. For, God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I do know that Romans 11.33 says how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. I do know that I ask for stuff, then we should ask for stuff as we pray. But we ask for stuff knowing that I don't always know exactly what I need. Trusting, though, that God knows better than I do. And so sometimes we pray and we don't get exactly what we ask for, right? But sometimes we pray and God gives us what we ask for. That seems to be what happened here. Peter was rescued. Humanly speaking, that looked impossible. Chains, guards, guards at the door, iron gate leading into the city. Yet all of it, Peter gets out of this maximum security prison at the last hour with little effort of his own. And it seems to be in response to the church praying. So church, we need to keep praying. Not knowing whether God will give us what we ask or not. Knowing that sometimes He will and knowing and trusting that His ways are better than ours. So church, we must pray. And that's what we can expect when we pray. Now, this next section tells us what Peter does once he's free. I think it's really interesting and somewhat humorous as well. Verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So again, the church gathered together to pray. We're introduced to this guy named Mark, who's going to become more of a character in the next couple of chapters here. But the important part here is that the believers are gathered together to pray. Now this next part is funny. Like, uh, I think Luke is even trying to, to, to pull out and help us to see. Like, this is, this is kind of funny. Um, one of the things that we used to do more when our kids were younger, when we had our family worship time, is we would act out the Bible story rather than just read it. Uh, and so last night we actually did that again uh, because we were looking at this passage together. A lot of times we read whatever we're going to do on Sunday. We do that on Saturday. We get to act this this out. And it's, and it's kind of funny. Like if you imagine all of this actually happening, because it did, it's kind of funny. Because here's what we see happening. Look at verse 13. So Peter goes to the house where the believers are gathered. What are they praying for according to verse 5? They're praying for Peter, right? Praying... We assume that he would be released from prison, that he might continue to lead. Verse 13, when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Okay, And, and so he's knocking on the door, she comes to answer, and, and he speaks enough that she can hear, hey, it's, it's Peter, hey, it's me, it's Peter, right? Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. She's like, who's Peter? And rather than saying, Peter, come in, like you're a wanted man, you better get it. Like she just, ha, ah, it's Peter. And she runs back to everybody else and tells them, like, hey, Peter, Peter's out there. Peter, the guy we're Peter, right? She's excited. In her joy, she runs back and tells everybody that Peter's standing at the gate. And their response 
right? The response of the people that are praying that Peter would be released is this. You are out of your mind. Like, you're nuts, girl, right? That's their response. You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, right? So she keeps trying to convince them. And maybe you're, you're the kind of person that you try to convince people of, st- of something. And after a while, it actually, like, you sound kind of funny because, like, no, like, you don't, you don't get it. And, and you start to almost laugh because they're not believing that what you're saying is true. It would have been fun to just listen to that conversation of Rhoda, the servant girl, trying to convince them, like, no, really, Peter's there. And they keep coming, like, no, it's just his angel, right? But meanwhile, back at the gate, verse 16, <laughs> Peter's still out there. Right, because they don't have the doorbell with the app on their camera, so they can't see him. So he's got to keep knocking. He's knocking. Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Now they must have been noisy, but Peter's a wanted man, and he's supposed to be executed the next day. So it says in verse seventeen, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent. Like, now they finally got there, and now they're being loud. It's like, guys, be quiet. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He's got quite a story to tell. I don't even know, you know, like, how many details he remembered, because he's like, he didn't even really get it till he was out. There's something about light, and then I got slapped on the side and chains, and, you know. So he's telling this story, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers Then he departed and went to another place. Interesting that that Peter's goal, it seems to be, is that the gospel continues to advance. He's been the one looked at as the leader up to this point in the church in Jerusalem. But we're told now that he's going to another place. We're going to hear about Peter again, but his role doesn't seem to be quite as prominent anymore after this. It's almost though... He's a man with a target on his back, and he's got to do his ministry a little more quietly. So he departs, and he goes to another place. But he's not just concerned about preserving his own life. He's concerned also that the message of the gospel and the work of the church continue to advance, so he makes sure you make, you've got to go tell James. Now, we heard earlier that a man named James had died, right? Peter knows this. This is a different James that he's talking about. So this James is the half-brother of Jesus. This is the James who wrote the book of James. And this is the James who's going to kind of, in some ways, kind of take the place of Peter as the primary leader in the church in Jerusalem. Okay? And Peter, concerned not just for his own life, but making sure that the gospel keeps going forward, says, make sure James and the brothers know about what's going on. And so... Peter then departs and goes to another place. People were surprised. No way, Peter's actually here. And now he leaves and there's another kind of no way moment here in verses 18 and 19. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter, right? I mean, they're just trying to think. Like they just went, like we followed all of the protocols, right? We had two chains on him. We had the two guards here. We had the one stationed at the door. There's the iron gate. We did everything we could. And Peter's gone again. This is not good for them. Because look at what we see next in verse 19. Verse 19. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put 
to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. I read that this was pretty much standard practice. If guards were in charge of prisoners and either intentionally or unintentionally allowed those prisoners to go free, then they would take on the punishment that the prisoner was supposed to get. Right? Okay? And so Herod is continuing his murderous rampages now against his own sentries. He's humiliated because he lost Peter. James is dead, and Peter is hiding out. But I don't want us to miss this point. I don't want us to miss the point that God is ensuring that the gospel is advancing. That's what we've seen all through Acts, haven't we? Back in Acts chapter 7, when it looked like as Stephen is having rocks thrown at him until he dies, do you think, uh-oh, is the church that's still really small at this point, is it going to be able to survive? And what happens? The church spreads. Persecution spreads the church. The gospel advances. More and more people hearing the gospel, turn, turning to Jesus in faith. And then, and then we get here. And now James, one of the twelve disciples, is executed. Peter's put in prison. He's going to be next. Yet what do we see? We see God ensuring that the gospel continues to advance. Charles Wesley once said this, God buries His workmen, but carries on His work. God buries His workmen, but carries on His work. It's not as though God's servants are unimportant to Him. It's just that God is going to ensure, even in the face of deadly opposition, that His work will continue. I've shared this uh, little story with you before because uh, I, I'm pretty sure I have at least. I've, I've thought about it multiple times. Uh, it's a story I heard from a pastor who was telling a story of an older pastor addressing a group of younger, ambitious pastors who were about to enter ministry and thought that as they were entering ministry that God would really uh, find them to be very useful in ministry. That, that certainly God was going to do great things through these young pastors as they came into their churches. And the older pastor, recognizing that these younger men needed to be humbled and reminded that God is going to indeed ensure the advance of the gospel, but he could do it with or without you, told those young pastors this. Someday, you're going to die. And they will put your body in a box and they will throw dirt on top of it and they will go back to the church and eat potato salad. Right? And they needed to be reminded of that. That God is going to ensure that the gospel will advance. And so my hope is that when my body is one day put in a box and you're all eating potato salad, that until that day comes, I will work and pray for the advance of the gospel with the kind of humility that recognizes that ultimately this is God's work. Church, you need to hear some good news. We need to hear some good news. For all of us who are in Christ, we live and die with this hope. Yes, here's the situation here. Stephen has been executed. James has been executed. Peter was in prison. He's next. The war rages on. It looks like the enemy is winning. The world's power is crushing the church, it seems. But we need to be reminded of this, that the Jesus who saves is also the Jesus who comes again to judge. We know this that the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. We know this, that the world doesn't win. 
Doesn't it feel like it sometimes? Doesn't it feel like the enemy, like the world, like our own sinful flesh, like them all teaming up together feels kind of crushing. It feels, we feel defeated at times. But in the end, the world doesn't win. Jesus comes to judge. King Herod, ISIS, whoever else may look like they're winning today. But unless they and anyone else repent and trust in Jesus, they will suffer eternally under his wrath. Because they don't have the final word. Jesus does. They don't win. Jesus does. And all of us who are united to Jesus by faith, we too win. All of the wrath of God the Father that we deserved has been poured out on Jesus and our sins nailed to the cross with Christ. That's true for all of us who trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. In Jesus, we have victory over sin and death. If you've yet to repent and put your faith in Jesus, you will encounter Jesus as judge and you are guilty. The only way to be declared righteous rather than guilty is to trust in Jesus who lived a perfect life and died in our place and rose from the dead with victory over sin and death. The only way for you to end in victory is to trust in Jesus. And that's the kind of thing that I think helps us to take a nap sometimes. That helps us to rest. That we can pray earnestly and rest shackled with chains of anxiety and depression maybe on each side, with temptation and fear standing at the door, we can pray earnestly and we can rest, knowing that if we should die, we will be with Jesus. That's where we're at now in the book of Acts. James, he's with Jesus. Peter, his day of execution is coming, but it's not yet. And until that day, he will continue to work, and God will continue to work. Even in the face of deadly opposition, God ensures that the gospel continues to advance as the church prays. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I'm really thankful for that. Thankful that though you do not need us, that you choose to use us. I'm thankful that though we were not uh, all cleaned up and polished, that you pursued us. And that it is and was and continues to be your intention to be working through sinful, broken people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. That we might be involved in Your work of ensuring that the Gospel is spread to the nations. God, thank You for that privilege. We know that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are at work doing just that are in a really tough spot. So help us more and more to be a church that prays, that intercedes for others. And God, as we're about to sing, that as summer flowers we fade and die, fame, youth, beauty, those things just hurry by. But we also know that life eternal calls to us at the cross. And so we want to be people who spend our lives rejoicing in our Redeemer, who is the greatest treasure and the wellspring of our souls. God, would you help us to trust in Him, no other? Would you help us to have souls that are satisfied in Him alone? If we're satisfied in so many other things, we're not going to pursue you the way that we need to. So God, I pray 
that you would help us to be increasingly satisfied in Jesus, that we might give our lives to the work that he calls us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.